You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome. My name is Captain Sean Newman, and this is a podcast by FDNY Pro on the 50th anniversary of the 23rd Street Fire. Today, we will take a unique look at the event, not from an eyewitness, but through the stories passed on from father to son. In this case, Assistant Chief Alan Hay, who retired as FDNY Chief of Safety in 2008, who has graciously agreed to be interviewed by this podcast about what his father, Chief Alan Hay Sr., experienced at Box 598 on October 17, 1966. Chief, thanks for coming. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So if you wouldn't mind, can you give us a brief summary of your 35-year career in the FDNY? I was appointed in 1974, and I uh, was assigned to 94 Engine in Hunts Point in the Bronx. I was there for about a year and a half, then I was laid off, and I ended up pumping gas at a gas station, driving a bus on the Grand Concourse, and then I was rehired for Christmas Day of 1976. And in early January of 77, I was transferred to Ladder 175 in Brooklyn. I worked there a couple of years. I transferred to 120 truck in Brooklyn. I was promoted to lieutenant in 87. And I worked in a 332 engine and 270 engine, promoted to captain in, I guess, 93. And I ended up in engine 16 on 29th Street in Manhattan. Then I was promoted to battalion chief in 96. And uh, I went to battalion 7, which is on 19th Street in Manhattan. I was promoted in 2001 to deputy, and I ended up in the 13th Division. And then in early 2002, Chief Operations Cassandra gave me a phone call, and he said, I need, you, uh, I need your help. I need you to come on staff and be chief of safety. And I said, yes, whatever you need to do, I'll do. In researching for today's interview, I couldn't find any information about your dad. His career predated any of the computer databases. So if you wouldn't mind giving us just a brief history of your dad's career. Okay, he was appointed in 1947, and he ended up in 91 engine. He was a 91 engine for, I guess, about seven years or so, and he made lieutenant, and they assigned him to 14 truck. Uh, he was there about two years, and then he was pro to captain, and he was assigned to Rescue 3. From Rescue 3, he was sent to Ladder 8 as a captain, and then he was promoted to battalion chief in 1960, and he worked in battalion 4-4 for about three and a half years, and then he was sent to battalion 7, where he worked for about two years, and around 1965, he was promoted to deputy chief, and he was assigned to Division One. He was there a few years, and then he was taken offline. He did some projects on handy talkies and officer induction training school, which was OITS, which is basically lieutenant school at the time. He eventually made staff, and he was assigned to the Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island uh, office. And then in 1972, they formed borough commands. He was an assistant chief at this time, and he was assigned as the Brooklyn Borough Commander. And then he retired in 1975. Now, Chief, at the time of the fire, Chief Allen Hay Sr. was a deputy chief in Division One, housed on Great Jones Street, a firehouse which I know as a former member has a, a very rich history. Can you tell us a little bit about your dad's turnout from Great Jones Street the night of the fire? Uh, it was a night tour, and he was uh, in the office, and he always monitored the department radio, the Manhattan Frequency. And he was listening, he heard the box come in for 598, and he knew the area because he had been in Battalion 7 a couple of years, and he was very familiar with it, and he knew Chief Tom Riley in the 3rd Division. He also was a good friend of Walter Higgins in the 7th Battalion, they had worked together. So uh, he was interested, and he kept an ear out, and then he, he heard the 1075 signal come in for a job, so his ears tuned up, and then when he heard the second alarm transmitted, he responded up to the scene to uh, try and give Chief Riley a hand in case he needed it, because he knew it's a tough area. 
I think it was commonplace at the time where uh, if a chief heard an incident that was nearby, he would basically respond there, self-respond there, and offer assistance. Chief, what did uh, your dad experience when he arrived at Box 598? He arrived and he ended up on 22nd Street. He met up with Chief Riley on 22nd Street in front of the fire building. And they were out there and they assessed the situation for a couple of minutes. And they heard reports about from the rear. They knew it was difficult to access fighting the fire, finding the fire. So they decided to take a walk around to 23rd Street. And they tried to assess the conditions there. But it really wasn't much. The stores were clear. There was real no indication of any kind of fire or anything. So uh, they decided to take a look from the roof. So they climbed to the roof of a taller building that adjoined the fire area. And they got up on the roof and they looked down. They had a good bird's eye view. And they saw a fire located in the rear between the two buildings. And they said it could be in the back of this building on 22nd Street. Or it could be in the back of the building on 23rd Street. Or it could be entering the building on 23rd Street. And they knew that the units were having difficulty accessing the fire area on 22nd Street. So they decided to take a look on 23rd Street side. So they went back down to 23rd Street, and they determined it's either behind a drugstore or possibly a lingerie shop. They talked about some options, and then they decided, okay, Chief Riley's decided he was going to take the drugstore, and my father would take the lingerie shop. So Chief Riley uh, ordered Engine 18 and Ladder 7 to uh, operate on the first floor and the uh, Engine 5 and Ladder 3 to operate in the cellar of the drugstore, and he put Chief Higgins, Battalion 7, in charge to supervise the units, and uh, those units got into position, and it was starting to operate a little. So then Chief Riley walked into the drugstore, and my father walked into the lingerie shop. Now, Chief, just to backtrack, in some of the narratives about this fire, it was mentioned that some of the firefighters who were listening in were apprehensive about Box 598. Was there anything about that intersection about that box or that area that would make a firefighter more cautious than usual? Generally a bad box indicates that either they have a lot of fires there or more often it's the complexity of the buildings that are in that area. So an incident of any size, it tends to be a major incident due to difficulty in access in the area, difficulty in extinguishing the fire, you know, just it makes the firefighting operations tend to be impeded by a lot of different obstacles. So it's a difficult fire. So they tend to call it a bad box. Now, Chief, going back to the lingerie shop adjacent to the drugstore, did your dad pass on to you exactly where he was when the collapse occurred? Yes, he entered the uh, lingerie shop, and at the front of the building on 23rd Street, in between the entrance to the drugstore and the lingerie shop, there was a small little shop. It only went about halfway back into the structure area. And so my father entered into the lingerie shop. He said the conditions were clear. He got towards the rear of the, of the shop, and then he noticed that the store extended to the left behind that little shop was in the front. So he walked over in that area, and now we found a small haze, a slight haze over there, and it's a little bit of smell of wood. So he went into the area, and he was investigating the area, and there was a lot of racks in the area with the clothing on it. And he was six to seven feet away from the sidewall that was shared with the drugstore, and he was about in the middle of that area, and he heard a, a whoomph, and he heard the sound of a collapse, and as that was going on, the floor he was standing on basically separated from that common wall and dropped down. The one side dropped down about a foot, foot and a half, and he fell onto the floor, and he went rolling down to that area where the wall is separated. There's superheated smoke coming out of there, the, the, the fire's coming out of there, the whole place turned black instantly. And he could hear the guys screaming from next door. He heard the collapse go down, and he knew they were down there, and he heard them yelling and screaming. So he uh, scrambled up that incline as best as he could and made his way out the store. 
and he immediately went to the front of the uh, drugstore. Did your dad take control of the rescue effort? Yes, when he got to the front of the drugstore, the drugstore entrance was old style, where the actual entrance door was about 8 to 10 feet in off the sidewalk, off the front of the building. And there was, you had plate glass windows that ran along the left-hand side on an angle. So the actual entranceway at the door to the drugstore was in about 10 feet from the sidewalk, and there was only about three foot of space there. So my father made his way into this area, and there were a lot of guys there. And as he, just as he got to that doorway itself, the 8 to 10 feet in, just as he got there, there was thick black smoke coming out and super heat, and he noticed guys were starting to come out of there. These were the guys from Engine 5 and Ladder 3 from the cellar, and they're starting to crawl out. And as they come out and get into that slightly fresher air than it was, they started to slow down a bit. My father realized that other guys were coming out, so he just started pushing them. And he was just pushing them out of the way with his hand and pushing them. And he pushed just about every one of them that came out of there to make room for the next guy to come out. And he ended up with a second-degree burn on his hand from that, from the, the coats. The turnout coats were so hot. From uh, reading up on the fire and asking around, one name comes up time and time again, and that is uh, Lieutenant Royal Fox from Ladder 3. Can you tell us about his experiences and uh, what he did in the cellar to ensure that his members and the other members operating in the cellar of the uh, drugstore made it out? Lieutenant Royal Fox, I heard that name very shortly after uh, this incident in 1966. And I was having discussions with my father in the later years when I was on the job. And he said that he only wrote one meritorious act for a class one ever in his 30-year career and I asked him about it and he said it was for this Lieutenant Royal Fox in Ladder 3 at the 23rd Street Collapse. So he explained that uh, all the members in the cellar, Engine 5 and Ladder 3, when that floor collapsed, they got hit with tremendous amount of heat and a tremendous amount of fire coming after them and they had no other thing to do except to try and escape the cellar as best they could. It was only the one way in, it was the cellar stairway that was from the first floor of the drugstore. So they followed the line, they scrambled up, and the last guy that was leaving the cellar and making sure everybody else was out was Royal Fox, and he had a young firefighter with him from his company. So they get up the stairs, they go up the stairs to the top of the stair to get to the first floor, and at this point, there was a landing, about a six-foot landing inside this enclosed area of the stairway on the first floor. The landing had collapsed down, probably from all the fire underneath it. So now you had a six-by-three-foot void from the top of the stairway to get to the floor of the first floor to get out. And the only thing left was a ledger board, which is a small, thin, two-inch board maybe attached to the wall, and the floors of the joists lay into that. And so uh, Royal Fox says, come on, we got to go. And the, the kid was scared. So Royal Fox, do what I do. So Royal Fox got on this ledger board, and he shimmied his way across, just hanging on his little, standing on his little two-inch board all the way across. He got to the other side, and he told the kid, do what I did. Come, come, come. The kid was paralyzed in fear. So Lieutenant Fox shimmied back across, put him on there, then straddled him, and then walked him across. And if they had fallen, it would have been about a 10-foot fall? Yeah, they they would fall into the fire. The fire was coming up, blowing up through the hole and everything, so pretty brave. So years later, I was studying for lieutenant, and we're reading about the, uh, the bulletin on SIDS. And one of the things was that if you have information, you got to send it down to the SIDS desk addressed to Lieutenant Royal Fox. So uh, I remember that name. So I used to mention it to everybody in the study group and tell them the story. Now, Chief, there's a lot of confusion at this fire because the, the main body of fire was in, in the cellar of the art dealer shop that was extended underneath the drugstore. When the collapse occurred and the members fell in from the drugstore into the 
seller of the art dealer shop, did it also break down the wall that separated the drugstore seller from the art dealer seller? I would believe it did. It had to because of the amount, the, the sheer volume of heat and smoke and uh, that just came rolling at them. It was almost like a thing of lava coming at them. It was just so hot and fast. So they really had to scramble to get out of there. They're actually, it was amazing that they survived. The members of the, the members engine in the five cellar. and, and yeah, ladder three. Engine five and ladder three in the cellar. Chief, can you describe the effort to reach the members of engine 18 and ladder seven after the collapse? After the members of Engine 5 and Ladder 3 had gotten out the doorway onto the, into the street area, there was a crowd of firefighters outside in the sidewalk area, right outside the drugstore. And my father ordered a handful of guys to go get a two-and-a-half-inch line and stretch it to the drugstore immediately. And then the other group of guys, he told them to grab hold of one of the lines. There was two hose lines going into the store, Engine 5s into the cellar and Engine 18s into the back of the first floor. So they grabbed one of the hose lines and they pulled it out, which was Engine 18's hose line. And as soon as they got it out, they opened the hose line and they started moving in. When they were advancing the line, normally you go kind of cautiously in and you take your time slowly and extinguish all the fire all around you. This time they knew the guys were in the back, so they just made a beeline in there with this line. And as they got near the rear, the fire extended up the cellar stairs and came out and wrapped around behind them. And at that exact time, the other group of firefighters came in with the second hand line and they advanced in and knocked down a fire. Now my father ended up taking the position next to the nozzle man and advancing this line in. So the original line kept advancing as fast as they could to the rear of the store and this line followed them up and was and was backing them up and basically had their back. Interesting thing was that the Engine 18's hose line, uh, one of the members of Engine 18 had been out on some inspection duty so he, had, he wasn't there for the original run but he shows up at the fire scene and he finds out his engine 18 is in there. So he moves up to the front of the line and he ends up on a nozzle. And as they're pushing to the back of the store, he goes over the edge into the collapsed area and he's hanging over the edge of this area and he's holding onto the bail of the nozzle. It's the only thing keeping him from falling into the fire. So uh, the guys that were on the line, they pulled the hose up and they pulled him up and they, uh, they got him out of there. And then uh, after several minutes, I think they ended up having to, uh, they tried to knock down the fire as much as they could. But after, the, after several minutes, I think they had to move out of the area due to potential collapse situations. Given how difficult this topic is and how firefighters generally don't pass on much of what they experience to their family anyway, was it years before your dad told you about his experiences at the 23rd Street Fire? Yes. He talked a little bit about it in a few years right after it, but it was really not much. And I was just a dopey high school student and, you know, he was just talking. But in 1973, as they were getting close to my list number to get onto the department, we started talking a little bit about it. And then we talked a little bit more, you know, as I got on a job and everything. And, uh, and so we get drips and drabs. But mostly once I got assigned to Battalion 7 in 1996 where he had worked and, uh, and we kind of talked about it in depth then. So uh, and I think he wanted to talk about it and stuff. And I, I knew some of the deals, you know, some of this stuff. I knew that he was, had been friends with Tom Riley and Walter Higgins. And uh, I remember him going to the funerals and, and everything. But, uh, but we really talked in depth about it. And uh, he really kind of gave me some information. He goes, the further south you get in Manhattan, he goes, the more difficult the operations can be because of various alterations that occurred over the years, legal or illegal. And he goes, you're just more difficult. The further down you got, the scarier it should get. And uh, I found that to be true. Chief, at the time of the fire, you were a few weeks away from your 14th birthday. Did that affect your decision to follow in your dad's footsteps? 
Not really. You know, I wanted to be a fireman. I wanted to be a cop. I wanted to be a ball player. I wanted to be an astronaut. But it did impress upon me greatly how dangerous a job it was and uh, how it could change in a minute. Everything could change in a minute. Did the fire or its legacy influence your decision to eventually become company commander of Engine Company 16, Battalion Chief and Battalion 7, houses or or units that suffered losses at the fire? Actually, uh, they did it. I was fully aware of Ladder 7 losing, the, uh, losing all their members at the 23rd Street collapsed. Uh, but I took 16 engine. It was just a, a really good house, and I really liked the guys, and I liked the area. And basically, when I was there, I ended up working with Joe Finley, who was the son of Lieutenant Jack Finley from Ladder 7. But I really enjoyed that. And I also liked that every year they had a memorial service in quarters for the members that were killed. And then they had a mass afterwards. And the priest that said the mass was a relative or a son of one of the people that was killed in uh, 23rd Street. Battalion 7, again, it really didn't have that effect that, oh, I got to go there. And uh, my father always told me when I first got on a job, don't ever work where I worked. But I ended up going to Battalion 7 anyway, and I think he was pretty happy about that. Walter Higgins' picture was up on the wall in the battalion, so I saw him every tour I worked. And I thought about it often, and uh, we responded past that area constantly, and it was always on my mind. But uh, uh, I just... The 23rd Street collapse, when I got to Battalion 7, in my mind, it was like, okay, I know how dangerous this area can be, and I really got to keep an eye out for the safety of all the guys and all the people. When I started covering in the 1st Division as a, as a young lieutenant in the mid-2000s, I found that almost every response in Battalion 7 was somehow complicated or odd. Was it always considered an area that just had unusual responses and difficulties? Yes. Uh, when I was there, you responded from the meat markets and the, the upper village and on the, uh, down south, and we went all the way up to, uh, past Penn Station. Uh, we had the Empire State Building to the, all the uh, slips and all the uh, docks and piers on the west side, and we had just every type of building imaginable there. And I found it was a great area to work in and uh, very interesting, and it was always something going on. Chief, from studying this fire, I see two main factors that led to the collapse. One was the storage of hazardous materials, lacquers that were used by the art dealer, and the other was the illegal extension in the cellar, which not only weakened the structure, but confused responding units as to where exactly the fire was. After the fire, based on articles, the department instituted a, a target hazard identification system uh, requiring chiefs to inspect certain occupancies. Uh, what other safety improvements were instituted as a result of the fire? I know they started the target hazard program, which was initiated by the administrative companies, and then the chief officers had to go in and assess it. And it was a pretty intensive fire plan in that it directed units where the first two units should operate, where they should not operate, the specific hazards, potential hazards on the scene. And it was a, a pretty good start. From there, I know it eventually it developed into the TIPS program, T-I-P-S, Tactical Information for Perilous Situations. And that was actually much more in-depth, and it was put onto microfitch, which is an old form of, you know, mini microfilm. And the staff chiefs carried these microfitch readers in their trunks. And if they got to one of these huge complexes, they could open up their trunk, put it in the microfitch, and read it and get specific directions, but really, really detailed stuff. And I think that was a, an offshoot from this situation. 
Another big advancement, I think, that came in and really pushed it, they were looking for handy talkies at the time, but at the time they were big and bulky. You had to carry a 10-pound box along with you, and it was more like a telephone handset you were talking on. And I think it really brought up the need to have more instant and direct portable communications with the handy talkie. And uh, actually, my father, after he did his two years or so in the first division, he ended up being pulled off as a deputy chief, and he was assigned to special projects. And one of the projects was developing the handy talkie. And when he was retiring, he said one of his biggest achievements and one of his proudest achievements was getting the handy talkie out into the field because he thought it was that critical. And I think this fire really displayed the need for that. How did the fire influence your dedication to fire ground safety over the course of your career? Like I said, when I was 13, 14 years old, I was really impressed with the danger of the job because my father was so smart, and if this could happen with him, man, it could happen to anybody. I was chief of safety and doing these different investigations on injuries and fatalities, and we had this fire in the Bronx. There was an illegal partition wall put into an apartment, and it ended up with six guys jumping out the windows in the back, and two of them were killed, and then one died later on from those injuries. So we had three fatalities from an illegal partition in a... uh, an apartment. So it's it's really incumbent upon companies when they're doing building administration, when they're doing building inspections, when they're out on a getting lunch, when they're out, whatever they're doing, anytime they have a chance in the building to look around and see what's up. Does everything look good or is there something odd or different or weird? And if there is, say something, you know, investigate it, take a look at it, because you never know 15, 20, 30 years down the line, it could save, you know, another firefighter. It could be their own kid who's on a job 30 years from now. So, uh, you know, take a look at it now and take advantage of fixing it or correcting it now when there's no smoke and you can see everything. You rose to the chief of safety after having such a family legacy. I mean, was there something about this fire or other significant fires that drove you to push innovation in safety and other fields? I realized the importance of it, partly because of the 23rd Street collapse and my father's experiences there. And I thought if we could do something to help prevent that, to prevent guys from being injured or killed, we were losing two guys a year on average. And in my eyes, it was unnecessary. I always thought we could stop it and prevent it or limit it. And that was kind of my goal from the beginning. I got a great team to come work with me, and I think we did pretty good stuff. Uh, We lowered a lot of the rates of uh, injuries and fatalities and uh, apparatus accidents and uh, and we got some good safety products to the members. We did a lot of good stuff. I think they get new bulky gear, they get new helmets every 10 years. We got them some better gloves. It was just uh, trying to keep them safe. I would think we have avoided many 23rd Street fires over the last 50 years because of our improvements since then. I find uh, members are much more aware, and and the important thing is that you got to get this down to the young members, the firefighters in the back step. They really need to be aware. They just need to know that something's not right. If it doesn't look right, you know, talk to the boss. Have the boss talk to the chief. Get everybody in there. Get this thing assessed. Because when the fire starts, there's nothing you can do about it. you got to fight the fire with the cards you're dealt. But if you can fix it beforehand... That's, uh, you know, that's important. So it's up for the senior firefighters, the chief officers and the captains and lieutenants to push this down to the young firefighters to really stay aware, you know, ask questions, be curious. You know, why is this there? Why isn't this there? And uh, it's all for safety. It's all, so we all go home. Chief Hay, thank you very much for coming. Oh, thanks for having me here. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today 
and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us, to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to FDNYFoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today. <laughs>